So I want to continue with us in uh, in in First Peter. We're going to look at uh, we're going to look at uh, the fourth imperative today, and, and I thought it would be uh, important important for us as we look at this uh, midway point of these imperatives. Uh, the Holy Spirit is, uh, as you know, is amazing. Uh, his work in writing the word is, is, uh, incalculable to us. It's effectual in us. But I just want us to just to take five minutes here to briefly, uh, review what's gone on since we're in the middle point of these imperatives. And, and we're getting this writing from God, from His Spirit. And there's a perfect unity in this. There's perfect harmony in this. There's perfect, uh, logic in this. There's perfect, uh, uh, tenderness in this. I just want us to think about this as we look at imperative number four. Uh, I want to look at First uh, uh, Peter chapter four, and we got some noise here, so I'm going to I'm going to participants, and I'm trying to move here. Uh, uh, let me get this. So I want to review this in uh, chapter 4 as we look at this fourth imperative. Let me read uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is going to be the fourth imperative. And then we'll look at the doctrine behind the imperative next week, and we'll look at the difficult text of Jesus going to the prisons and preaching to the prisoners and, and prison, and we'll talk about that and what that means or what it doesn't mean next week. But let's look at the first Peter chapter four, one and two. Therefore, uh, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So as we look at this imperative, I think we'll, what we'll do is we'll look back real quick. We'll, we'll see this that, uh, you remember the, the theme of Peter is, is suffering and persecution. And, uh, Peter has emphasized in the previous three chapters and will continue to emphasize in the next two chapters that the pathway to victory, remember we said the pathway to victory uh, the pathway to triumph, the, tri- the pathway to overcoming suffering is through suffering and it's through obedience. Through obedience, something I, I thought about it and, uh, and, and wrote down, through obedience, Christ is revealing himself in us. And through obedience, we understand who we are in him and who we are in him is made plain to the unbelieving world and shows them the blessed hope that we have. A mouthful, but through suffering, uh, it is the pathway to peace. Through suffering is obedience. And through that obedience, Christ is revealed in us. And we understand who we are in him. Remember who we are in him? We are... We have a heavenly inheritance. We have an inheritance that doesn't fade away. We have an inheritance that's reserved in heaven. And we are kept in that inheritance by the Holy Spirit. 
We are living stones. We are spiritual houses. We are royal priests. We are a holy priesthood. We are a chosen people. We're a, we are a private possession, blood bought by the Holy Spirit of God. And we are mercied. Remember we talked about last week, we are mercied and we talked about the ramifications of, of we are passive recipients of his mercy. And, uh, so that's who we are in Christ. And so as we remember these things and then what Peter does is he links all of these imperatives to each other so that they find a composite picture uh, of, of, of God's word uh, to us. Uh, this uh, chapter four, verse one, we see this. Uh, uh, we see this phrase: Christ suffered for us in the flesh. That links with chapter three, verse eighteen. If you look at three eighteen, Christ suffered once for our sins. So that links that. And then if we're reading in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, have the same mind that Christ had. And that's going to link with chapter 3, verse 8. And that's going to be a part of this doctrine of this chapter. If you'll look at chapter 3, verse 8, all of you be of one mind. And that's going to be the mind of Christ. And that's going to be the same mind as Christ had. When we see in 3.8, we see finally, finally links all of the, all of the, uh, teaching we did on submission. And it is a final link in the submission, submission context. And all this links, uh, this same mindset and this same obedience links with what we talked about in, uh, in 1.13 that we are to sub, 2.13 that we're submit to government. It links what we talked about in 113, that we are to rest our hope fully on him. So all of these imperatives are linked and all of this linkage, uh, uh, connotes a unity throughout this whole scripture and forms a harmony in the scripture and teaches us that persecution is the means which we become more Christ-like. And we learn obedience. And then it's also going to be a future link. I'm going to call this a hinge, a hinge imperative because so oftentimes scripture, what it does, there's a hinge verse or there's a hinge thought that <laughs> unites previous thought and unites future thought. So this imperative is a hinge imperative because it goes back to what's already been spoken and it points to What's going to be spoken? It's going to point to the future we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. It's going to point to four seven as we, as we, because Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, we're to be watchful in our prayers and we're to be serious and understand that the end of all things is coming. So that's going to be implemental and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be important. Uh, if you look at four, for uh, 19, as we look at the fifth imperative, it's going to be un- uniquely linked to the fourth one. And because Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, we're to have this mindset that he did, and we're to arm ourselves. And then we're to, in verse 19, chapter 4, and then we keep on making this deposit to our soul, of our souls to him. And we'll talk about that in great detail. And then lastly, it future links the last imperative, which is talking about humility. 
and to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt us in due time, casting all our cares upon him because he cares for us. So this is a hinge imperative, and it reminds us of the past. It causes us to look forward to the future. And so I just wanted to bring that up as we as we process this. Any comments or questions about this hinge imperative that looks back to what we've been taught and it looks forward to what we will be taught in this book? Okay. So I want to, we're not going to get very far today, but this is very important. And because it is hinging, it, it's going to hinge on the rest of the teaching. I just want to spend a little time with it. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, we're going to talk about that in great detail next week. Here's the imperative. Here's the command for us uh, that I want us to hear today. Arm yourself with the same mind that Christ had. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, for, but for the will of God. This term, arm yourself. Obviously, it's very personal. It is imperative that each one of us in the body of Christ understand that it is our privilege and it is our, um, and it is our responsibility to arm ourselves. This phrase is a military term. Arm yourself is a military term and it, the word portrays that we are in a battle. So when Peter says, arm yourself, he wants us as personal, responsible body people in the body of Christ, believers, that we need to be aware that we are in a spiritual warfare. That phrase, arm yourself, is spiritual military conflict in which we are in. We are in one sense, we are a church victorious we, Christ has already won the race and we will experience victory. We are experiencing victory. But in another tense sense, we are a church militant and we are in the middle of a battle that wages against each and one of us, both from internal component, which we'll talk about in a minute, and from external, uh, uh, enemies. So we'll talk about that. But this phrase, arm yourself, uh, it's in the aorist tense, which simply means that this, this phrase, arm yourself, is largely contained with the attitude of our mind. It's in the aorist tense, and it's, and it's, we must have an attitude of militancy as we fight against our flesh, as we fight against the world system, we need to be aware that it is a warfare, and I'll get into the verses to support this in a second. It is that this phrase means that we need to equip or arm ourselves with the appropriate tool or weapon, and of course we understand that that tool or weapon is in the spirit through the word. So just as Jesus fought Satan, when he was tempted in the wilderness and he taught us to, to pray lest ye enter into temptation, Jesus used his own word to cause his enemy to run. And we need to arm ourselves in this fight with this attitude of mind and heart 
that we have a tool, and that tool is the Word of God in prayer as the Holy Spirit gives it power and authority. Let me me read what uh, uh, my commentator says. It calls for an act that demands resolution and determination, and we have a personal responsibility and interest in it. We need disciplined readiness and a girded mind. Remember we talked about gird the mind of your loins uh, when we first started this, and that means to uh, basically pull in all the loose ends of your thinking. So in this arming of ourselves, we need to gird the loins of our minds and our loose thinking, and our loose thinking needs to be subjected to the Word of God and to the will of God in the power of God. So uh, that's what it means to arm yourself. Uh, and it's a military term. Now, verses that support this are multiple, but let's turn to ones we're very familiar with. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, as we arm ourselves uh, with this mindset, with the tools of the, of the Word and the Spirit and prayer, uh, we need to be aware of uh, whom we are arming ourselves against. Uh, we'll talk about the internal in a minute, but the external. Look at Ephesians 6. Everybody's familiar with this uh, uh, scripture uh, as we talk about arming yourselves. Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the end and having done all to stand. Stand. Gird. There's that word again with your, your waist with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith. You'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. Pray always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Be watchful too with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And so we see this arming of ourselves with the same mind that Christ had, we need to understand that it's spiritual warfare. Again, we need to understand that's the external part. Look at the internal part. Everybody knows this. Uh, uh, I pray that you haven't forgotten uh, Terry's wonderful uh, preaching, exegetical preaching on Romans 7. We're familiar with this. We fight this every day. We believe in this church. We believe the word teaches. There's two natures within us. We have an old redeemed nature, unredeemed nature that hadn't been redeemed yet. And we have a blessed new nature with new desires and new abilities and new desires. And there is a, there is a constant struggle between the two. So we need to arm ourselves against not only external fight, but the internal fight. If you'll turn to Romans 17, this is autobiographical for every Christian. Uh, 
715 Romans, from what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, I don't practice. And what I hate, I do. If then I do what I don't willing to do, I agree with the law that is good. But it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me and my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good I want to do, I don't do. And the evil I don't want to do, that's what I do. So we understand this internal warfare that each one of us goes through. Uh, and we need to arm ourselves against it every single day. And turn with me, if you will, to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians, uh, chapter ten. Second uh, Corinthians, chapter ten. Again, this is verses on arming yourselves. Arming yourselves with the mindset, the attitude of Christ. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, let's start at verse uh, 3. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 uh, tells us, Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So we see this beautiful unity of the mindset of Christ. We see the obedience factor. We see the word of God factor. We see the Holy Spirit energizing the word of God as we arm ourselves for the warfare in which we are in. Any comments or questions? I believe you're all unmuted. Does anybody have anything to offer or add about what it means to arm yourself? Okay, I'll take that as you, you're, you're good. Uh, as we go now, the rest of this verse, arm yourselves, it says, and this is key. It tells us to arm ourselves. Well, let me get back to first Peter. Arm ourselves also with the same mind. So we are, this is a link between how we arm ourselves with who has gone before us and who armed himself, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We need to have the same disposition as Christ did and the same end goal as Christ did. I like what one of my commentators said, Christ hated sin. And it prompted him to suffering to eradicate it in his people. Christ hated sin. And this hatred of sin prompted him to suffering to eradicate it within his people. Love that text. And we understand Christ's disposition and mindset was, if you'll go back a book to Hebrews chapter 12, we did have this same mindset as Christ did. The word also unites Christ's struggle with our struggle. Hebrews 12, 1 through 7. Therefore, brothers, since we are surrounded by 
great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and every sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking into Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, who for the what joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. Now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, considered him who endeared, endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and you become discouraged in your souls. You've not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin, and you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked to him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. So we see this mindset of Christ who was, who was, who set his jaw toward the cross for the joy of rescuing his people from their sins and eradicating the dominion of sin in our lives. What do you think about that? That's the attitude of mind that we should have as we are Christians militant as we fight against sin in our own life and we fight against the sin in the world system. And so I think what's interesting uh, is Hebert, a, a commentator that Terry and Keith have turned me on to, and I'm excited about him. Uh, uh, he says, uh, when it says, arm yourselves with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that does not mean that Jesus ceased from sin. Jesus is without sin. But what he's doing, he's transitioning from the suffering that Jesus uh, accomplished, and he's emphasizing that we are to fight in our suffering of the flesh, and the purpose of the fighting and the suffering of the flesh is to cease from sin. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered, according to uh, Hebrews uh, of course, obviously, but he did not cease from sin in his suffering because he was sinless. But we, God uses persecution and suffering in our lives to aid us in ceasing from sin. So I thought it was unusual. It may be confusing to some when you read he suffered in the flesh to cease from sin. Jesus did not cease from sin he was obviously without sin, but we are aided in ceasing from sin because of our suffering for righteousness' sakes. Everybody got that? I think that's important to understand that. Uh, any comments or questions? You're all unmuted. Any comments about that? And now it says, as we go through this fourth imperative, uh, with the same mind. I want to talk about the mind of Christ. And uh, uh, when I was thinking about this and one of these verses that I'm going to read, it's, it's, it's almost that we're waiting for a lightning bolt to hit us. First uh, Corinthians 2.16 tells us that we have the mind of Christ. What do you think about that? First Corinthians chapter two, verse 16. If you'll look at that, 
it tells us that we have the mind of Christ. Now, what does that mean that we have the mind of Christ? Let me read the whole text. First Corinthians chapter two, 13 through 16. These things we speak, first Corinthians two, 13 through 16. These things we speak not in words which man wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. But the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit, but they're foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In this context, we understand that because the Holy Spirit is regenerated, we can now discern spiritual things. And we can now comprehend the mystery of the gospel and the mystery of the cross. And we can understand our need to be reconciled to God. We can understand as the Spirit regenerates our old minds that we need a Savior. and We need to be redeemed from sin. We need to have our sins uh, the wrath against our sins appeased. And so part of this have the mind of Christ is we have this, we have a capability now to understand the mystery of the gospel. And so that's one of the things that this means. We have the mind of Christ. We have a spiritual discernment now. Uh, before we were not able to understand the things of God, nor did we care about the things of God. And but what the, the Holy Spirit regenerates us, places that faith in us, and starts to grow us through the Word. We do start having the mind of Christ, and so uh, that's what that means. Uh, we also understand about this when it says uh, in First Peter uh, that we should. Uh, that we should have the same mind of Christ. What was Christ's mind like? We see that from Scripture. We see that from Scripture. His mind is, is a humble mind. And his mind is a submissive mind. And we understand Christ's mind because his word reveals that to us. And we're able to spiritually discern the mind of Christ because we read it in his word. We know who God is because God tells us who he is. And so Christ, his mind is one of humility. And we're all familiar with the phrase, with this text. In humility, and so this is when it says we're to have the same mind of Christ, we're to have a humble mind. And uh, we're going to read that in, in First Peter as we get into Imperative 5, the mind of Christ of humility. But Phil, uh, Philippians 2, you're familiar with this text. I'm not going to read it all because I don't have time. But I just want us to see the mind of Christ in regards to humility. Uh, look at chapter 2, Philippians verse 3. This is his mind. Let nothing be done with selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but for the interests of other people. Let this mind be in you which is in Christ, who being in the form of God didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took the form of a bond servant, servant, and came in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, 
even the death of the cross. So we see that we're to have this same mind of Christ. We can understand him and know him and we're to be humble like him. And we are to not have selfish ambition. We're not to be self-oriented. We're not to be independent from others, but we're to be dependent on others in a community of faith. And we are to preference others and to love others more than ourselves, fulfilling the second loyal royal commandment, loving our neighbors ourselves. And so uh, that mind is also a submissive mind, as we've talked about in uh, with the submissiveness of Christ. He submitted himself and he yielded to the will of his father uh, to teach us his mind of submissiveness and humility and trusting and obeying and depending upon someone other than ourselves. So we see that mind of Christ. So, uh, so just that's an important part of this text. As we move through this, I want us to look as we conclude today. Obviously, I don't have a lot of time, 15 minutes. I really want to conclude with this phrase, uh, suffering in the flesh. Uh, suffering in the flesh, as I've said, is God's means by which we learn to cease from sin. And this suffering in the flesh, uh, what does it mean? Now, <clears throat> if you look back at the history of what people think about this, uh, there were some Jews, uh, not a teaching of the Scripture, but a misappropriation of Scripture. Some Jews thought that physical suffering can purify the suffering from sin. You would put it under the phrase of, uh, by suffering we can self-atone for ourselves. By suffering we can self-atone for ourselves. This is very common today. Have you ever seen pictures on Easter with the, with the, the Filipinos especially? They, what they do on Easter, uh, they will literally put each other up on a cross and they will beat each other with whips until they are bloody mess. And they believe that this, this, this is a self-atoning work, that if they will suffer themselves, that they can atone for their own sins. That's a, that's a, that's a myth. That's a heresy uh, that they believe. And many others have believed that if I suffer, then I, that suffering excel itself purifies me. And we understand the scripture teaches that we are purified by the blood of a perfect sacrificial lamb, Christ, and we cannot atone for our own sins. Uh, we cannot, as sinners, punish our own sins because of, of our sinful acts. So uh, we understand that's not what it means to suffer in the flesh. Uh, we also understand that... Uh, 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 this concept, uh, if, if physical suffering will discipline our flesh, uh, so that sin ex- cease to exist. This is a, this is something that's, that's been going on since antiquity. And I especially want to remember, uh, Martin Luther. Remember he was a monk and, uh, when he was struggling with justification by faith and through works, he actually tried, this is what we get the, the concept of staticism from, where we try to separate ourselves, and by separating ourselves from the world, that we can become morally pure in himself. And, and what did Martin Luther learn? That even though you're by yourself, you're still with yourself, and you're still flesh, still 
control you and controls you and you can't save yourself by separating yourself from the world. So that's another myth. Uh, that that's what this means to suffer in the flesh, that you can uh, ostracize yourself from people. And if you do that, then you're going to get right with God. And then uh, lastly, martyrdom doesn't uh, uh, suffering in the flesh by the ultimate sacrifice of martyrdom. Scripture tells us, even though I give my body to be burned and I don't have faith and don't have love, I'm a clanging symbol. So martyrdom, even the very act of dying, uh, doesn't... Uh, uh, that suffering, that ultimate suffering doesn't cause us to cease from sin, uh, but it, it doesn't save us or provide atonement for us. Uh, suffering in the flesh, what it really means is, uh, uh, is enduring temptation to become sanctified and processionally righteous. Uh, suffering in the flesh, uh, is, is, uh, is a work of God in our hearts. It's a work of the spirits in our heart, but it is also a process, not justification, uh, not glorification, but sanctification where we have to, uh, actively pursue righteousness by suffering in our flesh. Remember what Jesus said, uh, and uh, then I will just separate this into the inner struggle and the external struggle. What do we struggle with internally? You're all unmuted. What do we, as we, as we suffer in the flesh in order to resist sin and to cease from sin, what do we struggle with internally? Any comments? Our thoughts. Our thoughts. Yes. What else? Well, maybe you guys don't struggle, but let me tell you how I struggle. Our thoughts, our actions. We struggle with our members that, that dwell within us. We all have eyes, so we struggle with what we look at. We struggle with lust. We struggle with envy. We struggle with covetousness. We struggle with idolatry. We struggle with our ears, what we hear, and, and we put garbage in and garbage comes out, and, and it's a function of our desperately wicked hearts. We struggle with our mouths and what we say and what we think and how we gossip and how we condemn others. So all of this is the internal struggle that all of us go with. And this is part of the suffering in the flesh uh, that we must all endure to cease from sin. And so uh, that is uh, what I'm talking about, the internal struggle. You know how radical it has to be? We have to radically terminate anything within ourselves that would cause us to sin against God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 5? This radical teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, which characterizes who we should be in Christ as we, as we pursue perfection in this world and in this life. Look what Jesus said. You talk about the, the ceasing from sin and, and this, uh, 
and this uh, suffering to cease from sin. Look what Jesus said, this radical teaching, Matthew 5. Matthew 5, look at verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you. If one of your members should perish, then for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from your foot, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body. Jesus is not talking about literally pulling out your eyeball or cutting off your hand, but he's talking about radical, radical, vigorous, aggressive fighting in our flesh against sin. If you have a sinful thought, you need to immediately say, who goes there? And you ask the Spirit to stop your thought. If you have a, a deed that you've just committed, you need to repent of it. So we need to remember the video game where you got this, you got a club in your hand and these gophers keep coming up and you just kind of keep knocking down the gophers. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, that's what this is. This is like we need to keep on pounding the gophers down as they start popping up. So just if you want to keep that in your mind, I learned visually, and I know some of you ladies do, just picture a gopher popping up, and you got to pop it over the head with a club. And so that's what this means, this ceasing from sin and this, and this uh, struggling with the flesh. Bop that sin over the head every time. Be aware that it can fester. If you're a gardener, I know some of our ladies are gardeners and men, i.e. Francis and Dwayne. You've got to pull the weeds you got to pull the weeds in your marriage. you got to pull the weeds in your life. Uh, you got to keep the fire on the water so it doesn't become lukewarm. And so this is all part of this process uh, that we are responsible for as believers uh, to cease from sin and to suffer in the flesh, and that's just part of it. You know, some of these that we don't think about, our flesh wants to be comfortable. Our flesh wants material things. Our flesh wants to be accepted in life. Our flesh wants to not be ridiculed in fear. But that's what we are challenged with today. Uh, our flesh would say, you know, all these things that are going on, I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to be radical. I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be a, an activist for Christ. I just want to I want to be comfortable, and I'm going to wait for Christ's return. Isn't it very easy for us to do? But we are to be faithful and obedient and bold in love, not being jerks. But we are to, we are representatives of Christ, and we need to stand for him. And so I just want to, to encourage you uh, that sin remains in us, but it shouldn't reign. Sin remains, but it shouldn't reign. And we need to fight it every day. And we need to cease from sin. And we do that through the struggles of the flesh. And then the, the big one, uh, uh, the one that is so prevalent today and it is becoming more and more prevalent is this external fight we have. And the first thing we fight against, guys, is the world system. Scripture tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That doesn't mean people in the world. That world means the world system. So as we 
cease from sin and we struggle in our flesh internally, we also do it externally. And we fight with the world system. We fight with the culture. We fight with the politics. We fight with societal norms. And so as we struggle with this, uh, we need boldness. We need wisdom. And we need uh, to have an absence of fear. Uh, what are some of the things we fight about against societal norms today? Think about that. And, uh, and I know you're aware of this, but I just want to remind you of this. Uh, you know, it's just the political correctness that we have to endure as Christians is, is, is mind boggling. And I've talked to several of you and it causes despair in our hearts and we become disillusioned as, you know, this morning I read that Texas realtors uh, when they're showing a house, they can't even use the term master bedroom or master bathroom because of the slave connotations that master brings up. We know you can't have an Eskimo pie anymore because that's derogatory. We can't have uh, Aunt Jemima or Miss Butterworth or Uncle Ben's. All these things that society is focusing on, and I know it makes your blood boil, but these are just parts of the uh, of the process that we as believers struggle. And how should we react to these things? Should we say, okay, well, life's changing. I'm just going to get along. What do we do? What do we do? It's madness. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and the big one was a Texas Ranger baseball team. You know, Rangers were, uh, were uh, anti-Hispanic and they fought the indigenous people and they were blood-sucking people and they were vicious toward these people. So the Texas Rangers can't even be called the Rangers anymore. It just never ends. So as we see these things, as we fight this, uh, the culture and the politics, understand that this is satanic and it's driven by Satan. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood and brothers it's going to get worse. Evil men are going to get worse. Many are going to fall away from the faith. Men are becoming lukewarm and indifferent. Jesus said, because lawlessness abounds, the love of many are going to wax cold. So this is our great struggle, church, that we need to be militant against this demonic influence of our culture and our society, and we're to be salt and we're to be light in each relationship that God has put you in. And so we have to affect change as the Spirit leads us in each individual family member, in each individual employee we work with. And we've got to do it, unfortunately, we got to do it a certain way. We got to do it in love and we've got to, we got to be wise about when we speak and how we speak. But we are to speak and we are to be bold. And I just want you to, uh, and, and this guy reminds us a lot of what society is today. I want you to, as I close, as we look about ceasing from sin and, and the external forces that, uh, that are a struggle for us, remember Lot. Remember Lot. Remember Lot. Look at Second Peter. We'll get into this in great detail, uh, as we do Second Peter. But, but Lot was called a righteous man. He didn't act like a righteous man. Uh, his works didn't give evidence that he was a righteous man, but scripture says he was a righteous man. And, uh, 
but we understand that, that, that Lot's righteousness was oppressed and it was vexed by the unrighteous deeds and the unrighteous people that surrounded him. Look at Second Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 7 and 8. Second Peter 2, 7 and 8. Talking about the doom of false prophets and talking about God's ability to bring judgment to those who are wicked. And we'll get into all this in great detail. Chapter 2, 2 Peter, verse 7. And delivered righteous Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, we remember, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelt among them, and that righteous man was tormented his soul was tormented from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Does that surmise what you think today? You might give me a shake of the head. Our righteousness, the righteousness of Christ is really being vexed and oppressed every single day. As we see our society break down, as we see Isaiah said, Right is called wrong, wrong is called right, sweet is called bitter, and bitter is called sweet. Everything has been turned upside down, and we, how are we to live in such a day and age as this? That's my challenge for us today. That's God's challenge in his word, that we are to be obedient. We are to have the mind of Christ. We are to cease from sin, and we are to cease from sin through the means God has ordained, which is suffering for righteousness' sake. And uh, I want you to pray about this and act accordingly and arm yourself, a military term, arm yourself with the mind of Christ, the sword of the Spirit, praying in faith, and he will preserve us through he has won the victory, and uh, we hope in him. Any comments or questions? It's 